as we continue uh, walking through this book, uh, chapters 7, 8, and 9 really kind of, kind of go together really well. They kind of strike the similar, or similar chord as they're looking at this problem of wisdom, death, and evil. And each chapter kind of takes that issue and looks at it at a slightly different angle. Right, so last week in chapter 7, we saw how death and wisdom work together. Right? That death is a great teacher. That we can't ignore the idea of death and we'll actually live better when we face death honestly. And chapter 8 continues on with this theme as it looks at the problem of evil in this world. And how wisdom can instruct us how to live better in light of it and how to cope with its, with its existence. And so the two topics are really closely related. And we wrestle with, in this chapter, the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things uh, happen uh, to bad people? Of course, there's a sense in which that first question isn't true. Right? None of us, and he even says in this chapter, none of us are wholly good. All of us sin. There is no wholly good person. The only time a bad thing has happened to a truly good person was Jesus upon the cross. And so a better question is often, why do good things happen to bad people like us at all? Why do we have the good that is still existent in this world? But there's also a sense in which that original question, why do bad things happen to good people, is comparatively true. And you see that in this passage. Sometimes the righteous suffer like they're wicked, and sometimes the wicked are rewarded like they're the righteous. And we have to define our terms carefully here. Righteous here are those who are living by faith, those who are serving God with their life. Yes, not perfectly, but those whose direction is towards faithfulness. Why do they suffer? And just to make things worse, to rub salt in the wound, why do the wicked then prosper? Why does it seem like they get everything they want and they get none of the consequences? And that is really the world that we live in. Now, on an apologetic note, we have to come to this realization that this is only a problem, the existence of evil and the existence of a good God, is only a problem if good and evil actually exist. If those words actually have real meaning. If evil doesn't exist, then there is no problem of evil. If we live in, as many people believe, a purely naturalistic world, where everything has come about through random chance in billions and billions of years, then there is no problem of evil because there is no evil at all. I've had this conversation uh, with many an unbeliever. If this world truly is just evolution and Darwinism, then all we are left with, the ethic of the entire universe, is survival of the fittest. And if you have evil in your life and you can't overcome it, well, that is really just evolution weeding out the wick or the weak. That's just weeding you out. There's really nothing beyond that whatsoever. There is no problem of evil in the Darwinistic world. Similarly, if we live in a relativistic world where there, is no, there are no ultimate standards, where each society or each individual gets to determine for himself what is right, then again, there is no problem of evil. Who cares if Nazi Germany killed a bunch of people? Their culture thought that was right. Who am I in my culture to tell them that that was wrong? Everything is just culturally relative, correct? No one really wants to live that way. We just throw up those defenses so that we can feel better when we sin. 
the problem of evil, and really the problem of good, only makes sense if God exists and he is good. Otherwise, those words have no meaning whatsoever. It's only a topic of conversation, in other words, if the Bible is indeed correct. So, in saying all of this, people like to attack Christianity by assuming that Christianity is true. If the God of the Bible doesn't exist, there's no problem of evil, but yet people say, well, your God can't exist because evil exists. Well, in your worldview, evil doesn't exist. So there is no problem. They have to borrow from Christianity just to make fun of us and to try to poke holes in our worldview. And chapter 8 will wrestle with this idea of the problem of evil and how the wise should live. And as you'll expect, as we've walked through this book, there aren't any easy answers. And the wise man will acknowledge that often, especially when we look at specific acts of evil, we have no immediate answer. We don't know why this specific thing happened. And that is the beginning of wisdom in the fallen world. And this chapter starts off by talking about the benefits of wisdom. And it actually ends by looking at the limits of wisdom. So you have in chapter 8 this wisdom sandwich. It starts with talking about wisdom. It then develops the thought throughout the chapter and then it comes circles back around in verse 17 and kind of makes that nice little wisdom sandwich so that you can understand what's going on. Look at the starting place. Verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. If you've ever had the benefit of knowing a truly wise man or a wise woman, then you know what this passage is, is talking about. We're not referencing here the general wisdom that a righteous man or woman would have, the general wisdom of a believer, but that's someone who is an example of what it means to be a wise person. And when you encounter someone like that, you are uniquely blessed. Because who is, Solomon puts it, who is like such a person? Who can interpret and understand these things like a wise man? I have been blessed in my life to know many such men. I have met them personally. I have studied under them. I have read them from a distance. And I've been greatly impacted by the thought of wise men. And what is striking as you see them operate their lives, as you understand their way of thinking, in applying Scripture to the world, is the ease of which they communicate very deep things that provide insight beyond our reckoning. And also, you're like, how did I not see that? That was always staring me right in the face. Shouldn't I have, have seen that? And so I encourage you to find such men and women, read their books, listen to their sermons, and observe how they live. And be blessed. Because the wise man can interpret and give insight like nobody else. And if you've been here for a while, you know that one of those men that's impacted me is Francis Schaeffer. I quote him often. You've heard me quote him probably more than you care to hear. <laughs> and if you're fam not familiar with him, he was a Christian apologist who ministered in the 60s, 70s, and into the early 80s. He wrote many books that are a treasure trove of the Christian worldview and how to apply it to life. And as I've read him since he's passed in the early 80s, one of the benefits of reading someone 30, 40 years removed is you can see whether or not he was right. 
you can see, did this guy actually have the insight? So let me give you, give you an example from a book, How Should We Then Live? Published in 1976. This is what Francis Schaeffer wrote then about what was going on in America and in Christianity. And I'm sure in 1976, people thought he was a raving madman. He says, Here is a simple but profound rule. If there are no absolutes by which to judge society, then society is absolute. Society is left with either one man or an elite filling the vacuum left by the loss of the Christian consensus, which originally gave us our form and our freedom. And he continues this thought. He's like, well, who will these elite be that will fill in to become absolute? He says an elite will be composed of intellectuals, especially the academic and the scientific world, plus the government. As he continues, he says, most likely these will come from, these elites will come from the courts, especially the Supreme Court. If I need to argue with you that that's true today, you haven't been paying attention the last three, four years. Christians probably should have listened to him. If you read men like Schaefer, if you read men like Lewis or Chesterton, uh, and David Wells and so many others, you can see that they saw all of these things that were happening. And they were like John the Baptist running around in the wilderness eating the insects. And everybody's like, that guy's crazy. Don't listen to him. Except for everything he said was right. So familiarize yourself with such men. Because as Solomon says here, these men are like light on your face. And they will even soften your face. Because the wise are not merely stoic, they are not angry, but they have a deep-seated joy that flows from knowing God. And so that's the first slice of the bread of the wisdom sandwich. And the second one, at the end of this chapter, verse 17, Solomon writes, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So the chapter starts. Wise men can give you insight like nobody else. And he ends the chapter by saying, even the wise man doesn't know. Great benefit in wisdom. Great limitation in wisdom as well. They are not God. You should not put any great theologian, great writer, our great preacher on some pedestal as if what he says is always right. Even the wise do not know. Even the wise cannot figure everything out. And this should be good news for you, for this means you do not need to waste your life trying to figure out everything, because you can't. There's a level of mystery that you have to be okay with living with. You cannot dedicate your life to figuring out everything, Because like the wise men of old and the wise men to come, you are limited, you are finite, and there are some things that belong to God and God alone, and you don't get to know them. And so mystery is an essential part of our life. This should move us toward God, to worship Him, and to realize that while we are limited, God is not. Wisdom cannot solve every problem. So that's the sandwich that the rest of this chapter happens in. Wisdom is good. It's like light on the face. It will soften your face. It will give you insight like nothing else. But oh yeah, remember, wisdom won't solve everything. 
It will not give you every answer. And then in the middle of all of this, we wrestle with the problem of evil. I don't think that's a mistake. Wisdom's good. It can't answer everything, especially when we're dealing with how evil manifests itself in this world. Why do the righteous suffer? And why do the wicked prosper? And that is not merely an academic, intellectual discussion. That is something you will wrestle with in real life at some degree or another throughout your days on this earth. In our short time together as a church, a little over a year now, we have seen several untimely and unexpected deaths from believing families that came out of nowhere. We've seen the loss of children, fathers, and that could drive the, or that could drive the wise into madness. And the natural question is, why? Why did that happen? How is this a part of God's good plan? And asking those questions is not wrong, but if we don't deal with them rightly, it can lead to doubt and unbelief. And here in these verses, in the middle of the sandwich, we get to see a little bit of where evil manifests itself and how we should respond. And he starts with the halls of the king, beginning in verse 2. He says, I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. And the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. If you read a few more verses down there, you'll see that this is purposely put right next to the burial of the wicked. So here's wisdom. Within the halls of the kings, theoretically, if you were to advise a king, what were you to do? How are you to advise him? And what Solomon says here is you need to have a certain level of shrewdness. That you need to know which battles to fight and which ones to not fight. You only have so many political chips in front of you and you need to, to some extent, play that game if you're advising the king. And the opening words translated here say, keep the king's command, is very literally, keep the king's mouth. Keep the king's mouth. And it has more to do, it has to do with obedience more, or it has less to do with obedience and more to do with protecting the king's mouth. It's about making sure the king doesn't do something evil, something foolish. That is the job of the advisor, is to give the king good advice, because the king has an oath before God to seek good for the people that he is ruling over. And the problem is, as we see here, kings have supreme power in the ancient world, unchecked power. The advisors are pretty much the only ones who can prevent him from doing great ruin upon the people. Solomon knows this firsthand. He was a king. And he warns us earlier about not being surprised when we find evil in the halls of power. And verse 9 reminds us of that. This evil that man had power over man to his hurt. Governments, kings, prime ministers, tyrants often cause the greatest hurts in world history. The greatest evils. And this problem is magnified with how wicked rulers are often praised. He continues this. Verse 10. Look very carefully at verse 10. 
Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. And they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Imagine how hard your heart has to be, how blind your allegiance has to be to have a wicked ruler walking around and praise him. Even after his death. To look at the carnage that he has done, the evil that he has inflicted, and the blood dripping from his hands, and to praise him. And how that man would go about with a smug self-righteousness. He would enter in and out of the temple, the holy place, or in and out of a church building while he plotted evil in his heart. This is what Solomon is wrestling with. And it is a sad tale throughout history. Let me give you some examples. In the USSR, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin both had, well, they were in one, had their remains put in a giant mausoleum and the people of the USSR would go there to pay honor and respect and, in essence, worship these two men who were responsible for the deaths of millions and millions of their own countrymen. And the people would praise them even after their death. Mao, the communist revolutionary in China, still has an entire giant mausoleum where his remains are where people visit today to still pay him honor. If you don't know much about Mao and communist China, he is responsible for the deaths of 15 to 55 million people. Imagine being responsible for so many deaths that there's 40 million that we're just not sure about. And people in China today still go and pay honor to this wicked man. If we want to get up on our high horse, we do the same thing here in the United States. It's about two years ago now when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the former Supreme Court Justice, died. Sure, she did some historically significant things. But she used her power to advance and protect the killing of the unborn where they were ripped from limb from limb within the wombs of their mother. And she became an icon for the culture of death and for the cultural of sexual immorality. And when she died, people praised her. Makes sense. Shouldn't surprise me. But when she died, even evangelical leaders came out and praised her. That did surprise me. The problem of evil is magnified when we excuse or worship evil rulers. That is Solomon's point. And none of us are safe from doing that unless we check our hearts. The praise of the wicked is even further exasperated because they're often buried at a good old age and justice was delayed. Solomon continues, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So you have wicked people in power, you have them being praised, and oh yeah, they often live a long time and they don't get punished. Delayed punishment for crimes amplifies the problem of evil because people think they'll get away with it. Death is a part of that judgment for evil, and it cannot be escaped. Someday, the bill will come due for our evil, and either Christ will pay for it, or we will. And so as we look at others getting away with wickedness and go unpunished, it can tempt us to think, maybe it's worth it. Maybe I'll get away with it. And so parents should make note of this in particular. 
delaying, parents, delaying age-appropriate and offense-appropriate discipline to your children only makes the problem worse. It sets their heart further towards evil. Similarly, when cities or states refuse to prosecute crimes, you know what they inevitably reap? More of those crimes. And we see that happening in so many different levels today. And so that leads us to the quintessential problem in verse 14. There is a vanity which takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. We've been building to this point. Sometimes the righteous suffer and do so in terrible ways. And sometimes the wicked prosper and do so in tremendous ways. It's an age-old problem. And so what is God doing? Like, what is he doing? And if you want me to give you an answer from this text, we're not given one. That's part of the point. God doesn't always tell you why. But this is exactly why the prosperity gospel is so wrong and dangerous. Your faith and your righteousness cannot guarantee you success in this life. That's not the way it works. God is not your genie that if you just rub the lamp the right way, you will get three wishes. That is not how it works. And the New Testament reminds us that faithfulness in this age will often invite more trials and suffering in your life. So put those types of teachers away. Don't listen to them. It's not true. And so Solomon doesn't try to answer the problem. He mostly just laments it. He, he notices that this is a problem and that this is vanity. And he says nothing about how to answer it. He gives no logical defense of the goodness of God. That's his given. He assumes God is good. That's not up for negotiation. He assumes that God is reigning over everything. Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time and a season appointed by God for everything. He controls everything. He just calls it vanity. This is what we live with. This is how the world functions as it is bent and cursed. And the wise cannot explain why each evil thing happens. I do not know. I do not know why my nephew died at age 10. I do not know why old leaders who are evil live to a very old age and get to die on their comfortable bed in their mansion. I do not know why my missionary friend on his way to missionary training died with his whole family. The wise do not get to know. But I can lament it. And I can know that God will not waste it. That he has something going on, something that I can't see, something bigger that I do not know. But I cannot know why. So what are we left with? Are we to just look at this evil in despair? No, Solomon rarely leaves us there, and for that we should be very, very thankful. Wisdom does not ignore evil, and wisdom does not succumb to hopelessness. So how do we live in light of the problem of evil, knowing we can't solve it? And the solution is one he has offered throughout this book. It is to rejoice. It is to find joy. Find joy in the things of earth. Again, not as God replacements, 
but as instruments of God's goodness given to us, as gifts. That is how we live in the face of evil. Verse 15. And again, I commend joy. After every, all that darkness we just went through, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And note that theme that we've been working throughout this whole book. God gives this. God approves of this. It is meant to be enjoyed. It is a good gift of God. And here we get the sense that he gives it to us to push back against that darkness. To not be overwhelmed with it. That these things are a reminder that God is good. They remind us that evil and death are not the end. They are not the final world or word. For a few years now, um, I've written some articles for a ministry called Fight, Laugh, Feast. It's three words. Fight, Laugh, Feast. And if you're like me, you look at that name and you go, what? what? <laughs> Why fight, laugh, and feast? And I've, I even said that in one of my articles they, they had me write. I'm like, I, I don't know why, right? Fighting, I get. Okay? We live in an age of war. We live in an age in which we are told to put on the full armor of God to advance the kingdom. Feasting, I get. Right? We have to eat. I'm even getting hungry now. But why laugh? What's, why fight, laugh, feast? Why joy? Why that? I've landed on this. Now, Satan would love nothing more. I think this is what Ecclesiastes is getting at over and over again. He would love nothing more for you to ignore God either by placing all of your hope in the limited things of this life, the good things of this life, and make those your God, or he would love you to ignore God by rejecting those things and not tasting the goodness of God in them. He'll take either one. He'll take either one from you whatsoever. Because Satan has a propaganda machine in the form of death, sin, and evil. And he struts around this earth as if everything is already set in place that he has won and that we are doomed. That the darkness will overcome the light and the darkness is all that there ever will be. And in moments, like we've all been through, that seems true. It seems the darkness will win. I've been there. And Satan loves for us to stay there. He loves for you to be stressed. He loves for you to be joyless. He loves for you to be depressed and to be anxious. And he loves for you to not see the light. He wants you discouraged. And he hates seeing in the middle of his dark kingdom people filled with joy. He hates it. The joy he offers is a counterfeit. He hates true joy. And the more I study Scripture, the more I see the wisdom in the mantra, fight, laugh, feast. We laugh as we feast. We have joy as we take in the goodness of God. And even as we laugh, we are fighting. I mean, if you want to be countercultural in the last two years, when the world was losing its mind, have a deep-seated joy. And people are like, what's wrong with you? No, what's wrong with you? Satan is constantly promoting his power and making it seem like the church is doomed. And that all is lost. I mean, we even have within Christianity 
whole end time systems that stress doom. It's a lost cause, guys. I was watching a little video infographic with my boys the other night of the spread of Christianity across the world as the colors just spread and spread and spread. You look at that over the last 2,000 years and you go, we're not losing. We're not even close to losing. And yet, Satan has his propaganda machine where he says, darkness wins and you don't stand a chance. And brother and sisters, you need to hear this. Evil, death, and Satan are liars. It doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't mean that everything is sunshine and rainbows and butterflies. But they are not winning. And they do not have the final word. And so, Scripture reminds us of this. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we put evil in place by praising God and by enjoying Him through His good creation. I think that's why Solomon is constantly circling back to this point over and over again. What can you do in a vain world? Enjoy the goodness of God in the things that He has given you because they are a taste of something greater. They are a reminder of what this world was and what this world will be in the end. Good wins, evil loses because Christ died and Christ rose again. Colossians reminds us that he put to open shame evil, sin, and death on that cross. He mocked them on that cross. And they thought they were winning. The empty tomb shows us that the new creation is coming. Satan has been cast out of heaven and his days are numbered. He literally has an expiration date upon him. And that's why, Revelation 12 tells us, he's so angry. Because he knows his time is coming. Why do we commend joy in the things of this earth? Not because those things are the final thing, but because they point to the final destiny. They point to the coming kingdom. So, I think we're at three weeks of me quoting songs to you. And I haven't done it yet this week, so I've got to do it now. This time I'm going to quote to you a Christian musician. And he has a, Andrew Peterson has a gift of weaving sound theology into his songs. And in his song called Lay Me Down, this is a song he writes to his children and to his wife about his possible death. He's not dead, but he's like, if I were to die, how should you think about this? It's very Ecclesiastes of him. And this is what he, he writes. He says, I believe in the holy shores of uncreated light. I believe there is power in the blood. In all of the death that ever was, if you set it next to life, I believe it would barely fill a cup. Let me say that again. In all the death that ever was, if you set it next to life, I believe it would barely fill a cup. Because I believe there is power in the blood. The goodness is greater than the evil. And we can lose sight of that very, very easily. The end, as chapter 7 says, is better than the beginning. And so we are called in the interim to find joy in the good things of life because we are awaiting a greater kingdom from the Lamb. And those good things point us to that. And those good things push back against the kingdom of darkness. And so we are called to praise God and find joy in a world that often is marked by the problem of evil. 
And we get to see little glimpses from time to time of that uncreated light. It is no coincidence that John starts off his gospel of this imagery between the darkness trying to overcome the light, but it says it can't. It can't do it. It wants you to think that it will, but it simply cannot. And so as we live in this age, we are to remind ourselves of the, of the risen Lamb, that he is seated at the right hand of God until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, and that he is coming back. Jesus wins. Satan loses. Light wins. Darkness loses. And no amount of propaganda will ever change that. And so we are called to trust God. Trust God and wait. Trust God and keep going. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you rule. We thank you that your kingdom is retaking this world. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not be blinded by the evil that so easily promotes itself. That we would not lose sight that what we are watching is the destruction of the kingdom of darkness. That what we are watching is its death throes. For Christ has risen, and Christ reigns, and Christ will come again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.